You'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 1 and 2 and then 6 and 7. Also, if you will also turn to Isaiah chapter 50, we're going to look at a verse in that chapter as well. It's good to be with you on Christmas morning. It's good to be with you again. As Camper mentioned, I'm doing a two-part series. This is the second part of our Advent series. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time when he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. In verse 6. For us, for, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Chapter 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Robert Louis Stevenson is the author of Treasured Island. Many of you have read uh, his works. He, was, he lived in Scotland in the 19th century. And um, as a little boy, he lived on a hillside that overlooked uh, the city. And uh, Robert was always intrigued as a little boy about the old lamplighters who would come around with ladder and with torch and would light the streetlights for the evening. One evening, Robert was standing there by the window with fascination, and his nurse asked him, Robert, what on earth are you looking at out there? With great excitement, Robert exclaimed, look at that man. He is punching holes in the darkness. You know, the story of Christmas is about God entering into the world, taking on flesh, and entering into the world's darkness in order to punch holes in that darkness. It's about the enfleshment of God who comes to bring those who dwell in darkness into the dawn of His grace and His truth. Last week we began the series and we saw that Israel is in a very tough time, a very dark time. There's gloom that hovers over the world. We see that the kingdom of God is divided. There's the northern kingdom, there's the southern kingdom. and The northern kingdom is on the brink of exile. The armies of Assyria are knocking on the door, and exile is inevitable. The southern kingdom, it's a time of great indecision and anxiety, and in particular there's a king who's wringing his hands in anxiety and indecision and unbelief about what to do and who to turn to. It's interesting to me that sometimes the word darkness in the Bible is a synonym for the word sin. 
Another meaning for the word darkness in the Bible is a lack of understanding or insight. And that's how it is used in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10. In other words, sometimes God's people walk in darkness even though they're walking with the Lord, they're walking in fear, they're walking in the obedience of the Lord, but they're going through periods of darkness in which they're not able to discern the purposes of God. Do you ever feel like that? This kind of darkness is captured brilliantly by another writer. It's not uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, but another brilliant writer by the name of uh, John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress. At one point in the story, the main character, whose name is Christian, is uh, walking through a valley called Shadow. And Shadow is a very lonely place. It's described as a lonely place, a place of darkness, a place of, of pits that you can fall into, a place of shadow. It's a chaotic place where Christian, this character, experiences great confusion in his life. In Christian's case, he's walking through the, the, valley, uh, the valley shadow and he's walking on a very narrow path and to his right, there's a ditch that um, kind of represents um, just confusion. It, re it represents false teaching and false counsel. And to his left, there is a bottomless quagmire. We would know that as a swamp. And that's on his left. And as I mentioned, the, the ditch on the right represents false teaching or counsel. And if you think about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus said, you know, if a blind man leads a blind man, they're both going to fall into a pit. And sometimes when we're walking in places of darkness, places that we just don't understand in life, we're vulnerable to unbiblical teaching. We're vulnerable to unbiblical counsel. Why is that? Because we crave answers during those times of darkness. The bottomless quagmire, which I always kind of wondered if uh, those who named the Great Dismal Swamp, where I live just about three miles from the Great Dismal Swamp, I've always wondered if they draw from the Pilgrim's Progress. The, the, um, the bottomless quagmire to Christians left was a deep swamp that represented great insecurity, depression, and discouragement. And sometimes when we face situations that we do not understand, we can easily slide into discouragement and even depression. It's like this psalmist in Psalm 73 when he's trying to, to walk through a dark place. He said, as for me, my feet came close to slipping and falling. A ditch on the right and a quagmire or swamp to the left. And if we're serious about overcoming this darkness and experiencing the light of God's grace and truth, then what do we do? What do we do? The answer is in Psalm, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 50, verse 10. The answer is, let him trust in the name of the Lord. See a theme there? Last week we looked at the names of the Lord, the names of Messiah, this one who would come and deliver us. His name is Wonderful Counselor. That we need someone who is wiser than us. His name is Mighty God. We need someone who is stronger and mighty, mightier than us. And this morning we're going to look at the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. We need an everlasting Father. What does that mean? Literally, the uh, translation of everlasting Father literally translates into the Father of Eternity. The rule of Messiah, this one that God would send, His rule is enduring and everlasting. It knows no end. And His government will be like that of a Father. Now, 
We're not meant to uh, confuse the title Father, <clears throat> Father with the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. That's important for us to understand because God the Father has sent His only begotten Son, Jesus. Jesus is begotten. He's not made. He's not created. He's eternal. He has no beginning. But the relationship in Scripture between God the Father and God the Son is described as eternally begotten. And this one who will come will be like a father, according to the words of Isaiah. The psalmist helps us out here. The same psalm that we read in our call to worship, Psalm 73, Psalm 103, says this, As high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Now listen to this. As a father has compassion for his little children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. As high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is that father's love for that child. But we need a father who loves us. Some of you here have had loving fathers and have loving fathers. Others of you have had cold fathers or distant fathers or elusive fathers. Or maybe you had no father at all that you knew. If that's your case, then some, uh, there's something deep down in you that aches that longs for a father to watch over you and to love you no matter what. John Fountain was an uh, African-American professor at the University of Illinois in Champlain, and he said this on M uh, NPR radio, which makes it all the more amazing. He said this, he said, I always envied boys I saw walking hand in hand with their fathers. I thirsted for the conversations that fathers and sons have about the birds and the bees or about nothing at all just simply to feel a father's breath or heartbeat or presence. As a boy, I used to sit on the front porch and watch the cars roll by, imagining that one day one would park and a man getting out would be my daddy. It never happened. At 18, I could not find tears that Alabama's winter evening when I stood finally face to face with my father, lying cold in a casket, his eyes sealed, his heart no longer beating, and his breath forever stilled. Killed in a car accident, he died drunk, leaving me hobbled by years of fatherlessness. It wasn't until standing over my father's grave and having a long overdue conversation that my tears finally flowed. I told him about the man I had become. I told him about how much I wish he had been in my life. And I realized fully that in his absence, I found another father, and better yet, that he, God the Father, God my Father, had found me. And the message from the words of Isaiah the prophet is that you have a heavenly Father who has sent the Messiah who is like a father. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But if you have a Father that loves us, as high as the heavens are from the earth. And we'll spend all of eternity plummeting to the depths of that love. But we need to know this morning that in our darkest confusion in the moments of life when we are most confused and baffled and perplexed, that you have a Father who punches holes in the darkness. He's the Messiah. The everlasting Father. Wonderful counselor. We need somebody that's wiser than us. 
mighty God. We need somebody that's mightier than us, who's more powerful than us. Everlasting Father. And finally, the Prince of Peace. Seems interesting to me that uh, peace is a reoccurring theme in the uh, book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah refers five other times to this aspect of the Messiah's character and work. That he'd be a Messiah that brings peace. So it's not surprising that when the angels witness the fulfillment of this prophecy, that they burst into song singing glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. You know, when Jesus was leaving his disciples after he had completed his earthly ministry and he was about to ascend to the Father and he was leaving his disciples, he promised them peace, didn't he? When Jesus had risen from the grave, he greeted his disciples with the words that say, Peace be with you. According to the Apostle Paul, peace is the first fruit of being made right with God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It's the first fruit of our justification, the work of Christ. Peace is an essential part of living in God's kingdom, isn't it? It's an essential part of living in God's people, uh, living in God's kingdom among God's people. So here's a question this morning. Why does it feel sometimes that the church is a battleground? Why does it feel sometimes like our families are a battleground? Or our marriages are a battleground. Or maybe, at least, they're not a battleground, but they're a DMZ. You know, uh, they're okay, we're fine, as long as we don't walk into restricted areas that we can't talk about. I had somebody sitting in my office, actually, it was a very good friend of mine, very close friend of mine, who said uh, not too long ago, he said, Dan, I feel like that my mind and my heart is a battle zone. Just there's a battle raging within me. He had almost lost his marriage, and at the same time, he almost lost his business that he had started. He's a workaholic, and he couldn't wait for years and years and years. He couldn't wait to bounce out of bed every morning to go to work. He'd work late in the evenings, and he, and he couldn't really stand to go at home at night because of the conflict of, with his wife, because he had to face the gaze of uh, disappointment of his wife's eyes every evening. So he just tended to work late. Now it's just the opposite. His marriage is on the mend, and when he wakes up in the morning, he dreads going to work. It's a change. He dreads going to work, he tells me, because um, when he's on his way to work, it's there that he's alone with his thoughts all day long. And he's alone with his shame and with his regret. And he's all alone with the places in his heart that he could not enter. Last time we met, and this is a reoccurring theme in his life, I counted five times where he said, Dan, I just want to be at peace. And he professes Christ as a Savior. You know, one of the reasons that we're not at peace in our life is that life is full of disappointment. You know, we've been hit hard, we've been knocked down, we feel like the wind has been knocked out of us, and so... We lack peace because we're just kind of bracing ourselves, wincing, waiting for the next blow to fall. And if you're like me, during those times, you long for someone who identifies with you, who comforts you, who soothes you, who pities you. But there's another a aspect of um, the hardness of life. And it's not what happens to us, 
but it's what we do to ourselves. You know, there's just some things that uh, we don't want anybody to know about that's deep in our heart, in our mind. Things we've done, things we've said. And there's a sense of shame that leaves us longing for someone who not just understands and who pities and who soothes us and brings comfort, but someone who can actually cleanse us. Someone who can wipe away the stain. In other words, we want someone who can both comfort and cleanse. We want somebody who can not just pity, but truly pardon. Part of our problem as human beings is that we run and hide from the only one who can bring this comfort and cleansing because we feel naked and ashamed before Him. As a Puritan writer says, we dare not lift up our guilty eyes. Author Amy Dillard, I think, gets at this a little bit when she describes an experience that she had when she was a little girl and um, her parents asked a neighbor uh, at Christmas um, to dress up like Santa Claus and come over and kind of surprise the kids. And uh, they thought that would you know, be a lot of fun. And, and so this neighbor came over dressed up like Santa Claus and Amy Dillard ran up to her room, closed the door, and hid behind some furniture. And they went up and they said, what's wrong? What's going on? And, and she said, you know, it, it, the, the song. You know the song? And she said, what are you talking about? You know, you know, he knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you're bad and bad and good, or bad or good. And, you know, that's just a silly song. But there's a ring of truth in that because God really does see us. He sees us to the very core of our being. He sees our mixed motives and our ulterior motives. You know, when we're, you know, we have these mixed motives when we're doing something uh, kind or maybe something noble to somebody, and, but there's this, this, this mixture. He knows the composition of that mixture in every motive that we ever have. He sees us all the way to the core of who we are, to the bottom of our hearts. I mean, who can stand up and bear that gaze? One way we try to hide, and this is a classic, the classic way we try to hide from God's gaze is, is we just engage in blaming and criticizing other people, don't we? That was Adam's strategy when he fell in the Garden of Eden. To divert God's gaze, he thought, you know what, I'm going to hide in the garden behind some bushes or trees. I'm going to hide myself behind some, uh, some leaves and some fig leaves. I'll sew together. I'll cover myself. And if that doesn't work, I'll blame God and I'll blame the woman he created. I'll hide behind that blame and criticism. There's the alienation. We're alienated from God, we're alienated from each other, and we're alienated from ourselves. So where do we find peace? We find peace in a person. In fact, he's the Prince of Peace. The Apostle Paul, in one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible that talk about peace, says this in verse, Ephesians 2, verse 13. He says, But now in Christ." You who were once far away, you were far off, you were strangers and aliens and outcasts, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. See, peace is personal. Peace is relational. It's not a strategy. It's not a disembodied idea. It's not a process of education. It's not legislated by the government. The true peace is relational. It's a person. It's found in the, in, the, in the Prince of Peace. And 
In fact, if we had time to, to kind of explore that entire chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, we would find five action words that describe this work of peace. That the Prince of Peace brings us home to God. We were far, we were alienated, we were strangers, we were outcasts. And the Prince of Peace brings us home to God. He breaks down the hostility, the wall of hostility between each other. He brings us together. He reconciles us to God. And He recreates in us a unified humanity. And how does He do this? Apostle Paul says He does this by His blood. You see, the blood that cleanses your stain is the same blood that puts you in the arms of the one, the only one that comforts you when your life, when life in general, and when your sin knocks you down. Ben Patterson is the author of a book, one of my favorite books that I use in my pastoral ministry and in counseling. And it's called Waiting, Finding Hope When God Seems Silent. And Ben Patterson describes a time in his life where he went through two broken engagements in a five-year period. That's pretty tough. If you've ever been through a broken engagement, but to go through two of them in a five-year period... It was a time in his life, this, this second um, breaking off of an engagement, where he, his life was just shattered. I mean, there was just no peace. And he, you know, he visited a friend of his named Cliff, and they talked. And uh, as Ben was getting ready to leave, Cliff said, um, why don't we pray, Ben? And so Ben went first. Thought it was a good idea. It's, never, uh, it's always a good idea to pray, right? And so Ben kind of mumbled to God some of the best theology he can think of given the circumstances of his life. And then he waited for uh, Cliff to pray, and, and there was silence. And um, Ben just kind of opened his eye, and he was about to ask Ben what was wrong. And, and all of a sudden, he just heard these sobs. And, and he asked Cliff, what's wrong? And, and Cliff just said, you know, it hurts. In between the sobs, it just hurts. It just hurts. He said, what hurts? And Cliff, as a good friend, says, what you're going through, stupid. <laughs> and Ben said this in his book. He said, Cliff was weeping for me when I could weep no more. He said, there have been, a, there have been few times in my life when I have felt as comforted as that. You see... Cliff was a bit of Jesus at the very moment, at that very moment, entering into the places of Ben's heart that he could no longer enter. And Cliff wasn't giving him lessons about life and lessons about the brokenness of the human condition. He only gave himself, and that was enough for Ben in the moment. You know, sometimes God chooses not to answer all the why questions that shatter our peace. Why am I going through this? Why did I do this? Why did I fail? Uh, you know, why did I mess things up? What is going through? You know, why am I going through this in this time of my life? But God always gives us His presence. He Himself is our peace. As we're hurting, as we're suffering, sometimes when life knocks us down, sometimes when we knock ourselves down by the own, our own sin in our hearts, you know, sometimes it's 
It's better to forget all of the whys and instead learn about the who. A prince. A prince of peace who both comforts and cleanses. Who both pities and offers pardon. Who draws you into the arms of God. But who punches out your darkness. Isaiah the writer asks, uh, kind of poses a question to us. Let him who walks in darkness. Who walks in darkness? All of us walks in darkness. Let him who walks in darkness, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord. What is the Lord's name? It's wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace.